Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first listen. listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So this week I was thinking back on one of my favorite Mr. Rogers facts. It's about when Coco the gorilla met Mr. Rogers. You remember Coco the gorilla, right? I love Coco. Yeah, she was the <laughs> one that uh, she knew sign language, right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, when Coco met Mr. Rogers, she was already a huge fan. <laughs> Apparently scientists used to play the program for Coco. So when he walked in, she got really excited. And not only did she give him, like, this big hug. And Coco was, I mean, like, she was big, right? Yeah, enormous. So you have to imagine this giant gorilla just enveloping this rail-thin man. But then she started taking his shoes off, and he was a little surprised. But then he realized she was only doing that because it was the same way he used to start every single show. <laughs> I mean, well, everybody loves Mr. Rogers, you know? <laughs> exactly. And there are a million stories about how good and kind he was in real life and just how beloved he was, even by gorillas. But with all the tension and politics and general horribleness going on in the world today, we thought it'd be nice to do a little Thanksgiving show about one of our favorite neighbors, and really, one of my favorite humans, Fred Rogers. Let's dive in. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikader. And sitting behind the soundproof glass, zipping up his cardigan over... Wait a minute. Is that another cardigan? <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> Two cardigans. Double cardigan. That's our uh, friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. All right. So, Mango, we're obviously talking about Mr. Rogers today. And, and I'm guessing you watched a ton of Mr. Rogers growing up. I did. I mean, from our generation, I, I really don't know anyone who wasn't influenced by Mr. Rogers. Yeah. But at my house, we didn't watch a ton of TV, but we watched a lot of PBS. Like, we watched Sesame Street and Reading Rainbow. We actually subscribed to 321 Contact Magazine, <laughs> uh, which actually had an influence on Mental Floss. And, and uh, you know, there were shows like Square One and Carmen Sandiego. Mm -hmm. But I definitely remember watching Mr. Rogers and talking to the screen when Mr. Rogers would ask questions. And also, like, learning little tricks from the show. For some reason, it always cracked me up. I, I love watching kids talk to the screen. <laughs> My kids still do that. But So do you remember what tricks you learned? 
Yeah, I mean, this is kind of ridiculous, but there was an episode where he was doing some craft and he made a little paper house just out of like a single sheet of construction paper. And then he bent and cut out a front door so that it would open like a real door. And for some reason, I kind of filed that away. And then in kindergarten, during this holiday party, when we were coloring gingerbread houses, I snuck over to this tin of scissors and cut out the front door like I'd seen, just two sniffs, so <laughs> swing open or whatever. And all the adults were so impressed. And when <laughs> everyone asked me how I'd come up with such a clever idea, I just kind of shrugged. You, know? <laughs> you took credit for it, huh? I know. I totally stole it from Mr. Rogers, and I still carry that guilt. I would, too. That's pretty <laughs> stealing from Mr. Rogers. And I, I'm sure those adults are still talking about it, too, how creative that mango is. But... Yeah, of course, I watched Mr. Rogers, too, but it was it was always funny how Mr. Rogers kind of became this thing at, at Mental Floss. It was really your thing. And you, you wrote an article about him when we first launched the website. I, th I think it was called like 15 Reasons Mr. Rogers Was the Best Neighbor Ever or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I, I honestly think he should be America's patron saint. <laughs> I probably watched a little more Mr. Rogers than most people because my mom was a preschool teacher. And Actually, what's funny is that story for Mental Floss was actually the second list I'd written about Mr. Rogers. Really? So what was the uh, what was the first? <laughs> well, in seventh grade, we had to do this writing assignment where we talked about an inspirational figure in our lives, and we had to get in front of the class for five minutes. And it was supposed to be serious, I think. Uh, some kids talked about their grandparents or people they considered heroes. But instead of writing something meaningful, I think I was trying to impress some girls in my class. So I decided to do mine on Mr. Rogers and why I thought he should be president. <laughs> and I presented it as a top 10 list, which was super edgy at the time. Right. <laughs> but the whole thing was full of bad jokes about how he'd make America feel special. And I'd also really gotten into Eddie Murphy at the time. So I'd seen Eddie Murphy's SNL parody. But I also included things like how Mr. Rogers had actually really influenced my style wearing cardigans and low-top sneakers. I put so little effort into this thing. And honestly, most of my five minutes was spent with me on a stool, slowly zipping up my sweater and uh, and putting on sneakers, just really hamming it up. I don't know why this is so easy for me to picture, like you giving <laughs> that same presentation now. But it is funny. If you had not mentioned Mr. Robinson or Eddie Murphy's character on SNL, I definitely was going to. I, there, there was a good story about this. I actually read that one time Fred Rogers happened to be at 30 Rock. So he decided to sneak in and surprise Eddie Murphy, you know, just to meet him in person. So he goes up and knocks on his door. And when Eddie opens it, he was, of course, stunned. I mean, there's Mr. <laughs> Rogers just standing there grinning at him. And so Eddie was supposedly a little bit embarrassed by the situation, but he just gives him a big hug and smiles and says, it's the real Mr. Robinson. Oh, I love that. <laughs> So, so did your class like your presentation? Not to go back to that, but it's just, I can't stop thinking about it. So did they like it? I think so, but, uh, the worst part was that the teacher liked it. So for the next assignment, she made everyone else do a top 10 list of celebrities that should be president. Right. Which we have now, I guess. But, uh, honestly, now that I'm saying this out loud, all of it makes zero sense. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I know we both read and loved Tom Juno's piece for Esquire years later and, and realized what an amazing figure Mr. Rogers actually was. There's so many incredible parts of the story, but one of the things I loved most was that wherever Fred went, people wanted to tell him how much he meant to them everywhere. Actually, I, I pulled this passage from the story because I wanted to read it here. It says, um, quote, once upon a time, Mr. Rogers went to New York City and got caught in the rain. He didn't have an umbrella and he couldn't find the taxi either. So he ducked with a friend in the subway and got on one of the trains. It was late in the day and the train was crowded with children who were going home from school. Though of all races, the school children were mostly black and Latino, and, and they didn't even approach Mr. Rogers and ask him for his autograph or anything like that. They just sang. 
they sang all at once, all together, the song he sings at the start of his program, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And it turned this clattering train into a single soft runaway choir. I mean, isn't this great? <laughs> That's so wonderful. I, I mean, he did do 895 episodes and 31 seasons of that show. So wow. um, I looked up the numbers and it reached 8 million families every week. So obviously he was bound to run into some fans. Yeah. But that Juno piece is honestly one of my favorite magazine stories ever. And for those of you listening, it's written as these vignettes of him interacting with kids and interacting with the author. And you just leave it wondering, how can a person be that good? I mean, it sounds ludicrous, but reading that story made me want to be a better person. And I think Juno wrote that piece in the late 90s. And then six or seven years later, when you couldn't find that story online because so many magazines had pulled all their content from the Internet, I I wrote that list uh, partially because I generally wanted readers to rediscover that article. Yeah, and so we'll definitely link out to it from our Facebook page. Uh, all right, so we, we've talked around Mr. Rogers, but why don't we dive into his actual story here? Sure, but why don't we start by each giving one fact we learned about him this week? You always want to skip straight to the facts, man. you <laughs> got to be patient, but whatever. I can't help it. They're so fun, but uh, here's mine. Did you know Mr. Rogers was the official celebrity captain of the Pittsburgh Penguins? Like the hockey team? (laughs) Hockey doesn't exactly seem like Mr. Rogers. Yeah, I don't think it is either. But for uh, the 91-92 season, and this was the NHL 75th anniversary, every team got to pick a celebrity captain. (laughs) And most of the teams picked like A-list celebrities or movie stars or whatever. But the Penguins picked him. And there was even this rookie trading card they made for Mr. Rogers. Oh, my gosh. I love that. So is he wearing a hockey uniform in it? I wish. It's just a picture of him in his neighborhood. But uh, (laughs) hearing that made me like hockey a little more. Um, Why why don't you tell me about facts you liked? It's hard to surprise you with these facts, but there, I mean, there are some good ones. Like, like once you realize how committed he was to kids and childhood development, it makes sense that, you know, he taught himself to speak slowly. I, I think he spoke at a rate of 124 words per minute because that's actually the optimal speed for kids in the, you know, three to five age range. That's so crazy that he was that committed. But, uh, what's your actual fact? All right. Uh, I don't know, maybe that he was a vegetarian. He actually owns shares in a vegetarian magazine called Vegetarian Times. <laughs> That's so strange. You know, my mom actually used to subscribe to that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Had a lot in common. Well, he stopped eating meat in the 70s because he didn't want to eat anything with a mother. And when he was profiled in the magazine, he said, I love tofu burgers and beets. <laughs> <laughs> he has to be the only NHL captain in history to ever say those words. Pretty sure that's true. But uh, let's get back to his bio. Why don't you give us a quick rundown of how Mr. Rogers got into TV? All right, I can do that. So um, Fred McFeely Rogers, how great is it that his middle name was McFeely, <laughs> was born in 1928 in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. He grew up to be a puppeteer and an ordained minister, but he had a sweet and fairly ordinary childhood. He was a gifted pianist. He was editor of his high school paper, president of student council. Not surprisingly, he did really well in school. And when he graduated, he decided to go to Dartmouth to study romance languages. But then he transferred out a year later than that to go to Rollins College because he wanted to pursue music. Yeah, I've read that he composed like 200 songs for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Yeah, that's right. And I actually thought he was playing the piano at the start of the show because I I knew that he could play the piano. And and because he does play on the show when he sings. But but at the beginning of the show, it's actually his friend, the jazz musician Johnny Costa. You know, I hadn't heard of Johnny Costa before this week. And I read that he and Fred went way back and that this was kind of a steady side gig in rough times for him. But being friends, Mr. Rogers knew Costa's financial situation. And the salary he offered him was the exact amount Costa needed to put his son through college. Huh. Isn't that kind of sweet? Yeah, it is. But uh, from your reading, is Costa famous? Like, I, I didn't really know about him. 
Well, I mean, I think people in jazz circles knew him. You know, apparently Ella Fitzgerald's pianist used to tune into the last five minutes of Mr. Rogers every day just to, quote, hear what Johnny was up to because he was that good. Oh, and I do have to add this because it's a very Mr. Rogers fact. So Johnny said, children understand good music. I would never play piddling nursery rhymes. That's pretty neat. But uh, we'll get into Fred Rogers' philosophy in a bit, but it it was never to dumb down anything. It was always about respecting the kids and their feelings and their intelligence. You know, it's funny. I I heard Sarah Silverman talking about a really difficult topic this week, but as she was kind of talking herself up to it, she said, quote, if it's mentionable, it's manageable. Mm -hmm. And like that kind of stuck with me. And I thought, what a nice quote. And then as we were doing this research, I realized that's actually a Mr. Rogers phrase and one he used about talking about difficult topics on his show. But uh, we should get back to the biography. Yeah. All right. So so Fred goes to college and he meets his wife, Jean, there, who's also a pianist. But when he's home on break from school, he watches TV and he sees people throwing pies in each other's faces. And he has this pretty visceral reaction to it. As you know, puts it, Fred was, quote, the soft son of overprotective parents. But he certainly had conviction. And, and right then, while watching this mean-spirited pie throwing, Fred realized that if TV is going to have this sweeping effect on our culture, he wanted to fight against programming's baser impulses. He wanted to fight for what he called broadcasting of grace through the land. I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds kind of <laughs> nice. So. so so when he became this ordained minister, which which he did at the same time that he went through grad school for child development, he decided to use all of those skills on television. And that's when he started Mr. Rogers in Pittsburgh? Well, not exactly at that point. I mean, he'd done a little puppeteering and TV producing, but his first real gig as Mr. Rogers was actually in Canada. And that's when he first got on camera. And the show was called Mr. Rogers. Weirdly, for some reason, it was all one word. I'm not <laughs> sure why. But it only lasted a year or two because Fred decided he wanted to raise his kids back home. And, and that's when Mr. Rogers' neighborhood really kicked off. So I, I, of course, want to talk about his pacing of the show and how he used that medium for good. But I also wanted to take a second to talk about his wardrobe. I know a lot of people may know that all of the cardigans on the show were knit by his mother. Uh, Apparently, she used to knit one sweater a month for family members, and she'd ask Fred, what color this year? (laughs) So uh, wearing that cardigan was this little tribute to his mom. But taking off his dress shoes at the beginning of the show actually had an alternate purpose. Really? I mean, I'm I'm guessing it was just to make the kids feel cozy. If you remember back in our education episode, we talked about the fact that it helps kids concentrate better in school when they take their shoes off. Was was that what this had to do with? Yeah, that might have been a side benefit, but his dress shoes also clunked and squeaked. So walking around the studio with quieter and less squeaky shoes is why he switched to sneakers. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I, I want to get into the actual TV show along with some of the heartwarming stories about him. But before we do that, why don't we take a quick break? With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots. 
the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. So we're talking Mr. Rogers and how he used his neighborhood to educate kids. So let's talk for a second about the pacing of the show. Yeah, so Rogers liked the show to move slow but deep. So he taught kids through things like anxiety, telling kids they were too big to slip down the drain or talking about how things like haircuts don't actually hurt or even talking about complex things like divorce. And there were also field trips around the neighborhood to nurture curiosity. And the land of make-believe was there, you know, the the place the uh, trolley would go to right. with all the puppeting. But um, what's really interesting to me is how much he studied kids' nature and the way they learn. So there was this one Yale psychology study that compared the effect of Sesame Street on kids versus Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And the results were sort of surprising. Oh, yeah? So why was that? Well, the kids who watched Mr. Rogers remembered the storylines better. And they also had a better tolerance of delay. Essentially, they were more patient when they'd been promised treats. Huh. I mean, but you've seen old Sesame Streets, though. I mean, I know there's some quick moving graphics from time to time, but for the most part, those shows seem pretty slow. Yeah, but Mr. Rogers really worked to keep the show as seamless as possible. Like, he'd rehearse the show over and over because he wanted to be thoughtful about every word he used. And he didn't want to make too many cuts, partially because that can be jarring to viewers watching so intensely. You know, it is funny to contrast this show with something like you know, SpongeBob or a show like that. <laughs> I, I remember our friend Ethan Trex at Mental Floss telling us about this study from 2011 that the show was basically making kids dumber. <laughs> you know, of course, there was this UVA study that uh, that looked at a group of four-year-olds that were allowed to watch an educational cartoon, some that watched SpongeBob or spend their time coloring. And after nine or ten minutes, they then tested the kids on puzzle solving and following instructions. And also a tolerance of delay. And the kids who watched SpongeBob did by far the worst. <laughs> I mean, I'm guessing that's because all those quick cuts made it hard to process for kids, right? Yeah, but, you know, the way the study was argued against was pretty hilarious. There was a spokesman from Nickelodeon that started out by saying that the show is intended for older kids. But then the argument devolved into something like, quote, watching a sponge in pants is just a new and unfamiliar concept for kids to wrap their head around. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure that's what caused the lower scores. There's also that great story of someone coming to the studio to uh, put a fish on microphone and feed them in the aquarium. Like Mr. Rogers wanted to hear the sound of uh, fish eating and and it was all being taped live. 
But the person kept trying to hurry the fish along because they just weren't feeding. So uh, they'd say things like chow time or dinner bell. And Mr. Rogers just kind of patiently waited. And afterwards, he revealed his philosophy that it's okay for kids not to have that immediate gratification, that they can learn to wait through watching the program. It's just remarkable, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, the other thing Mr. Rogers was really thoughtful about was social issues, which he kind of saw as Christian issues as well. So Michael Long of HuffPo wrote up a few things he'd noticed. And here are some of the things I didn't realize about the show. So 10 years before Sally Ride, Mr. Rogers had his puppet character, Lady Elaine Fairchild, fly to outer space and discover new planets. And then two years before Barbara Walters broke through as the first female anchor on the evening news, he actually had Lady Elaine break that barrier as well. She's just breaking barriers <laughs> left know. and right in Paris. And, you know, and, and, and obviously those are imaginary characters. And, and I do think they affected kids' perceptions of what women were capable of. But he also had some real people on the show to stress these points as well, right? Mm-hmm. I read that he created a character, Mayor Maggie of Southwood, played by an African-American actor in 1975, which I guess was almost like 15 years before an African-American woman would become the mayor of a big city. Yeah, and, and actually the character he created after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination in 1968 was also really important. So he asked this musician friend of his, whose voice he loved, to play the role of Officer Clemens. And StoryCorps did this incredible interview with Francois Clemens that deserves to be listened to, but here's how he described it to NPR. Quote, I grew up in the ghetto. I did not have a positive opinion of police officers. Policemen were sicking police dogs and water hoses on people, and I had a hard time putting myself in that role. So I, I think he really struggled with it because he liked Fred but was conflicted about the impact he could have. Yeah. But then in 1969, there was this episode where Mr. Rogers is resting his feet in a kiddie pool on a hot day. And as Clemens put it, quote, he invited me to come over and to rest my feet in the water with him. The icon, Fred Rogers, was not only showing my brown skin in the tub with his white skin as two friends, but as I was getting out of the tub, he was helping me dry my feet. I mean, that whole story just kills me. Yeah, and the thing is, is like it's so hard to pick these stories because there are so many of them. Mm -hmm. I actually saw a quote from Clemens where Mr. Rogers was ending the show the way he always did. He was hanging up his sweater and telling the audience, you make every day a special day just by being you. And I like you just the way you are. And on that particular day, Clemens thought Rogers was looking at him. So he walks up to him and asks, Fred, were you talking to me? And this is how NPR tells it. Yes, I've been talking to you for years, Rogers said, but you heard me today. It was like telling me that I'm okay as a human being, Clemens says. And, and that was one of the most meaningful experiences I'd ever had. I know. There are honestly a million stories of Mr. Rogers doing a kind thing, from how he'd get up at 5.30 every morning to answer massive piles of mail, like every person who wrote in got a note back, He'd also make friends with journalists, which made him a really hard interview because he'd take photos of them and their time together and then mail those to them. And, and he'd keep up with them to ask how their families were. <laughs> One time he made a limo driver drive to his own house so Rogers could meet the driver's family. And then they played music and sang late into the night. And when a father wrote in because his blind daughter had heard Mr. Rogers feed the fish once, but then was worried that they had died. Mr. Rogers changed his daily narration to include a bit where he said the fish were fed and doing well. And there are just so many heartwarming stories of him telling kids to be brave in difficult situations. Yeah, yeah, there's too too many great stories. And, and by all accounts, he was very much the same person on and off screen. Uh, but we should talk a little bit about how he saved PBS and also the VCR. So why don't we do that after the break?
Okay, Mango, so earlier we were talking about this wonderful profile of Mr. Rogers and Esquire called Can You Say Hero? And we were lucky enough to get the author of that profile on the line. Tom Juno, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Thanks for having me. So, Tom, it's been, I think, nearly 20 years since your profile. And I think at the time, Mr. Rogers must have been famous, but not top of mind for most people. Why did you choose Mr. Rogers as a subject? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't actually choose them. It was a, it was definitely one of those uh, profiles that was chosen for me. Um, I mean, there are two reasons for it. Uh, number one, we were doing a story uh, or, an, or an issue devoted to American heroes, and you know, one of the editors very strongly advocated that that Mr. Rogers should be counted on that list. Um, but the second thing that that had happened was I had just gone through a bunch of stuff. Um, regarding Kevin Spacey. Uh, a year before, I had um, written a story, uh, the cover line for which was Kevin Spacey had the secret that sort of danced around uh, outing him. And it probably did more than dance around. So, um, and that at the time seemed incredibly um, transgressive and wrong. And, you know, I, I was uh, attacked from uh, all sides. And Kevin himself um, called for me to be blacklisted uh, for further celebrity profiles. And I was just sort of finishing up all that. Well, the editor who advocated, Mr. Rogers, uh, on the cover of the Heroes issue, advocated that I be the writer. It's just like, you know, not only would it be sort of counterintuitive to have him on the cover, it would be um, sort of extra counterintuitive to have the notorious Tom Janot do that piece. <laughs> and so, was he interested in having a story on him? Um, you know, it was just a, it was just a funny thing. I, I, you know, he had a lot of protection at the time, um, but I didn't know any of that. I, you know, contacted his um, people, and his people said, well, "Okay, well, you can, you can, you know, visit him um, in New York when he's in New York." I didn't know at this time that his people were trying very hard to dissuade him from talking to me. Don't you know who this guy is? Don't you know what he did? And it had nothing to do with, you know, Fred being gay or whatever. That was never part of the equation, but it had to do with just me being sort of a bad guy, a notorious guy. And that really set up the whole dynamic for the story because I didn't, I didn't know that that was going on, but I went and saw him in his apartment in New York City. And, you know, he... <laughs> He, you know, I called him up and said, you know, can I come over? And he was like, well, Tom, you know, I'm, I'm in my robe and slippers. I'm taking a nap. But you can come <laughs> over, you know. And, and you know, and I, I went there and I knocked on the door and, you know, by God, he was in slippers and, and a robe. And uh, and he was in this apartment. And, and just right from the very, very start, I started asking him questions, which he never answered. He did not. I, I mean, I, I saw Fred many times. Um, he never answered a single one of my questions. He always deflected <laughs> by asking me a question about myself. You know, um, you know, and, and it, you know, part of that is in the story. You know, he he asked me, and he, just like I was started asking him about his past, and he was like, "Well, you know, I was I had a lot of friends back there. I didn't have a lot of friends, but I had a lot of you know imaginary friends, like stuffed animals and things." I bet you had a close friend like that too, didn't you, Tom? I was like, yes. His name was Old Rabbit. 
oh, I bet you loved Old Rabbit very much. And, <laughs> and you know, and it was it was just you know that dynamic from the very beginning. And you know, as a journalist, I had to decide whether to accept that or not. And I did. And I think I did because I needed to. I think I was really, I was really at a tough place in my career. I had just gone to Esquire from GQ. And, you know, GQ was, was pretty much a, you know, a, um, it was like, you know, nonstop, um, you know, glory, really. I mean, it was, it was a, just, you know, I did, I, you know, every story was, was kind of greeted, you know, and welcomed, um, you know, with enthusiasm. And then I went to Esquire and my first story was on Kevin Spacey and people just hated it. And for a while they kind of like hated me. And, um, and then Fred came in and really, really, um, I think saw that. I think he saw that. I think that he saw that I needed, uh, someone to trust me and he decided to, and I decided to trust him. And that was the dynamic of the whole story. Wow, that's really interesting. Well, well, Tom, one of the things we haven't seen written about much is is his relationship with his sons. Do you happen to know much about him as a parent? You know, I don't. I really don't. I've you know, I met his wife uh, Joanne many times, and I'm still in touch with her, but I don't know very much about his relationship with his son. Well, you know, I'd known he was a minister, but he was always so quiet about his faith on the show. And, and I'm curious, why do you think he asked you to pray with him during your reporting? Because I think he was quiet about his faith on the show, but I think he lived his faith, you know, every day. I mean, I, I know for a fact that he, you know, woke up um, every morning um, at five o'clock in order to pray for people and to write, and to think, and to read. But from five to seven was his time by himself, and um, part of that was prayer for people. And I, you know, mm. I became one of the people he prayed for. Um, you know, from the very beginning, he was ministering to me. He was not just like a typical profile subject in any way at all. Uh, he was ministering to me, and I was okay with it. And, in fact, I was, you know, I needed it. And, um, so that was, that was really what happened. So I, but I think that Fred was one of those guys who was, you know, he was very private. He was not a person who, you know, talked about his personal life at all. I mean, like zero. And, but I think that when you got past a certain point, I think his life and faith was a, you know, was a huge component of that private life. So, Tom, I was curious, what was your relationship like with him after the interview? And, and uh, did you stay friends? Yeah, we did. We stayed, we stayed friends um, until he died. And um, even though I did not know how sick he was, um, I was not one of the people who um, was led in to that level. But, I mean, you know, after um, the story came out, we stayed friends. I mean, I have... I don't know, like, I don't know how many emails I have from Fred that he sent me between 1998 and 2003 when he died, but, I mean, at least 500. And they were just, they were mostly short. They were mostly just like, you know, praying for you, Tom, or praying, praying for, I mean, I mentioned, you know, a family relation um, who was having trouble, and she was young, and I know that he prayed for her. I mean, I know that for, I know that for a fact. And so, 
So I would like call him every once in a while. Like one, I would, you know, it was, it was just funny. I was the other day in, in Atlanta. I, I came around this exit that reminded me of Fred because I remember the day when I came around that exit and there was a snapping turtle crossing it to get to some sort of, you know, vestigial pond that had been, you know, developed around. And I stopped my car and, you know, I, picked up the snapping turtle and all these people all at once came out and helped me. And, you know, I told, I told Fred about it. I called him up and told him about it. And he was like, uh, isn't that like you, Tom? You know, like he, always, <laughs> you know he always had a, he always had a kind word to say. And the last time I spoke to Fred, um, was, um, on Christmas Eve or Christmas day, 2002. And on Christmas Eve, um, there had been a, uh, a battle uh, in my family. And it was uh, not between um, my wife and I, but my wife got involved in a fracas between me and some, you know, some others. And it was, you know, it was just a, a typical kind of family thing. But, you know, my wife was really upset that night, and she couldn't sleep. And because she was so, she was so mad about how she had been treated. And the thing that got her to sleep was that she thought to herself, like, what would Fred Rogers do? Hmm. Well, how would Fred Rogers react to this? That's, I mean, that's how sort of ingrained um, he was to, you know, our, our way of thinking in our family life. And, you know, I, I called him um, Christmas morning. I called him that next day and told him that. And, he, you know, he gave me that same that same answer, you know, how, how like you to, um, to call me and tell me that. And I did not know that he was dying of stomach cancer. He already was, he was, you know, he was diagnosed and he was sick. He died, um, two months, two months later in February of 2003. And, you know, I remember very well how I found out that he died. You know, I went down to my computer looked open my laptop and there was his picture. And, you know, I just, I knew, I knew right away what that picture meant. And, you know, it was, uh, I had to give a speech that day here in Atlanta and I wound up um, asking everybody in the audience to uh, maintain uh, one minute of silence in, um, in tribute to Fred. Not somebody to remember Fred, but because that's what he did. That's how, that's how he, you know, opened his speeches. He would count off that minute of silence and have people think about someone they loved or have the audience think about people that they loved. And um, so I did that that day. And it was, um, it was pretty emotional. Wow. Well, it's, it's such a great story. And, and, and I can't imagine that story for you having come at a, at a better time and what a life-changing moment. And I think what's been so remarkable for us as we've been preparing to do the episode this week is just how many people there are in the world that feel similarly that were so positively affected by him and in so many ways. But thank you for writing this profile on him. I know, again, it's been a couple of decades, but Mango and I have talked about this one so many times over the years. It definitely changed my life. And, you know, it definitely changed um, how I operate as a journalist. There's no doubt about that. Thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate it. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you 
to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby Award winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. So before the break, I mentioned that we talked quickly about Mr. Rogers' impact on culture, and specifically PBS and the VCR. And, and in both instances, Mr. Rogers went to Washington. It was it was almost out of a Capra film. And, and actually, you can see these things going around. You still, still see them shared all the time mm-hmm. on social media, him going in front of Congress. But when PBS's budget was going to be cut, he, he went and spoke passionately about how TV can help kids with emotions. And instead of a budget cut, the funding jumped from 9 to $22 million. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> and when the government was debating whether VCR should be allowed in homes because recording videos from TV might work against copyright issues, and, and keep in mind, this was a long time ago, but it was actually a pretty heated issue. Rogers convinced them that for working families, being able to tape a show and then watch it together later was really important. And his testimony swayed that decision as well. I mean, he was so gentle, but so convincing. Burger King ran this commercial a while back called Mr. Rodney, which was kind of a sweet parody. But then they got a call from Mr. Rogers, who had received letters from kids and parents wondering why he was now pushing burgers. Yeah, it would be kind of a weird fit for a vegetarian. So I guess that's why they just decided to transition to that giant, weird-looking king that isn't going to parody anything. <laughs> I don't think so. But uh, Mr. Rogers had never done any commercials. So, you know, he hadn't even done those PBS auctions that you see during the fundraising drive. So he gently asked them to remove the $150,000 spot because he didn't want any of his kids confused. 
And Burger King actually pulled it. Like the commercial only aired for one week. (laughs) His ability to just call people up and relate to them as humans was extraordinary. And even Burger King agreed. This is what their spokesperson said. Quote, it just goes to show that everybody will be good if you're spoken to in a nice way. Yeah, I mean, he really believed in these peaceful resolutions, and even in smaller ways. Like when Gorbachev visited the U.S. during the tail end of the Cold War, he had a guest on from a Russian children's program with a translator. He wanted to show kids how people can communicate from different parts of the world and and how, quote, we all want friendships and we all want to be cared for. And some months later, he went to Russia and returned the favor with an appearance on Russian TV. Yeah, he has this quote I love. Uh Peace means far more than just the opposite of war. And there's so many more stories to tell, but maybe that's a nice place to end this for now. Well, I mean, we can end this part of the show, but there's still one more part of the show we have to get to, and and that's the fact. (laughs) Do you know Mr. Rogers was colorblind? I didn't. Like, literally colorblind, though his family also took in foster children of all races. All right, well, here's one you should love. So Mr. Rogers was a napper. <laughs> he got up at 5.30 every morning to answer mail from uh, from viewers, and then he went swimming, and every afternoon he'd try to get in a nap. So I need to figure out how to get more naps into my day. Right. But uh, did you know Mr. Rogers created his own ice cream flavor for a local dairy? No. It was called Blueberry Go Round, and <laughs> it had a blueberry ripple with macaroon chunks in it. His grandma used to make macaroons for him as a child, apparently. You know, and sometimes people forget that he was a loving husband and father. So once while playing piano at an event, his wife walked in the door and he joyously stopped playing and ran to greet and embrace her. (laughs) The photos he took of journalists and experiences were so he could share his day with her. And after he passed, she had a really hard time not starting her sentences with we. Oh, that's sad. Well, this is my absolutely favorite fact about him and what I wrote in Mental Floss years ago. Quote, As an ordained Presbyterian minister and a man of tremendous faith, Mr. Rogers preached tolerance first. Whenever he was asked to castigate non-Christians or gays for their differing beliefs, he would instead face them and say, with sincerity, God loves you just the way you are. I love that. And, you know, on this Thanksgiving, what do you say instead of crowning a winner? Let's forget about the trophy today and end this segment the way Mr. Rogers would end some of his speeches. I like that. All right, here goes. All of us have special ones who have loved us into being. Would you just take along with us 10 seconds to think of the people who have helped you become who you are? 10 seconds of silence. We'll watch the time. Thank you for listening to Part-Time Genius, and thank you for being exactly who you are. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Do we, do we forget Jason? Jason who?
At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first listen. listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 